If that doesn't work, we'll just blame it on my scratchy voice. You'll have to be patient with me. I came home with a, with a cold this week. So we'll get through as long as I keep working on my drink. Okay, I was thanking Pastor Riddle for switching weeks with me. It came at a, a very good time. It allowed me extra time to prepare for this message. And uh, it also allowed me time to properly prepare for World Dairy Expo, which wrapped up this past week in Madison, Wisconsin. For those of us in the dairy world, it's like Christmas and Fourth of July and Halloween all wrapped up into one cheese-fueled week of excitement. So that was, that was really great. Um, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. This is our fifth week in the book of Philippians and uh, working our way through from passage to passage. When Pastor Riddle and I flipped our weeks, we ended up putting verses 19 through 30 ahead of verses 12 through 18, which is our text for this week. But I don't think that is going to be any handicap to understanding what we have here before us this morning. After today, after today, we'll have two more chapters in the book, which will take us four more weeks. Okay, let's read today's text from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and then we will pray for our time in the Word this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we can share in your word this morning. I thank you for uh, the time that you allowed me in preparation. And I thank you for the work that you have already been doing in the hearts of your people here to prepare them to hear your word, what you would have them hear and how you would have them respond this morning. I pray that this time will be useful to us in our growth in the Christian life and that it will be uh, helpful to us in the weeks and months ahead. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Okay, we are going to start this morning with our primary application illustration right up front so that it will be in your minds all the way through. In two weeks' time, in two weeks' time, Austin and Erica will be married. I see Austin in the back. Is Erica, is she teaching today or is she... She's teaching. So she'll get to hear this later on CD, her privilege. It'll probably be better for her that way. Uh, now, let me ask this question. This is not intended to be a difficult question. Looking ahead one month, will Austin and Erica have a deep, strong, thriving, rich, battle-proven, time-tested marriage? No, it's not intended to be a trick question. Of course not. Of course not. In a span of one month, their marriage will be new and exciting and, and young and fresh, but it will be not anything like the marriage that they will hope to have after three or ten or forty years of walking with each other and with the Lord through the trials and challenges of life, through the uh, joys that will be before them and the challenges that they'll face, uh, learning how to uh, forgive each other and apologize to each other and humble themselves, and uh, how to fight fair. On the other hand, uh, they will be no more or no less married in two weeks' time 
than they will be in two decades' time. They will never be any more married than they are in two weeks, but to have a uh, marriage can only grow and deepen and strengthen through the course of time. Not that the passage of time makes that happen automatically. It's not something that just happens naturally. What happens naturally when two sinners bind themselves together for a lifetime is uh, that things blow up and go haywire. And uh, Aaron and I worked hard this week to come up with some illustration from the early days of our own marriage that might help you uh, understand that. She came up with some story about me not taking out the trash in the right and proper way. And I don't really remember it happening that way at all. But uh, so we agreed. We agreed to point the finger at Joel Kinsey, who married these last six weeks, pointed out on Facebook yesterday that his lovely bride is unable and unwilling to appreciate and understand the depth, wisdom, and beauty of his favorite Backstreet Boys song. And that's, you know, what are you going to do? Women, right? Okay, so what's the point? The point is that a satisfying and God-glorifying marriage is not simply about being married and staying married and grinding out your vows over the course of a lifetime and hating every minute of it. No, it's about pursuing and loving and humbly serving your spouse over a lifetime. When other people see that kind of marriage, it makes them want to have that kind of marriage for themselves. It's inspirational. Now, that's in general. There's some folks with all the ooey-gooey, lovey-dovey, hand-holding and giggling that's just nauseating for everybody. And uh, other folks will be rocking the gift of singleness all the way home. But in general, uh, when we see that sort of marriage, it fills us with hope for what marriage can be and should be. Okay, stash that in the corner of your mind. Don't lose it, because we'll be coming back to it. Going through a book like Philippians over the course of nine short weeks has its advantages and disadvantages. We can clearly see Uh, as we do it in that short amount of time, that uh, what it is that Paul wants to say as he moves from chapter 1 through through chapter 4. We can see the significance of the path that he chooses to take along the way. But on the other hand, it means that we have to go hurtling by some of the uh, richest and most profound sections here in uh, chapter 2. We're only spending three weeks in chapter 2, and it's got some of the most amazing stuff in the New Testament about Uh, uh, the work of Jesus. The ascent up that great mountain began back in chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then it builds up through unity and through courage and the humility of mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, which are the verses that come right before our text this morning, are some of the most Significant and profound statements of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul didn't write that passage to give us information about the obedience and subsequent exaltation of Christ. He wrote it so that the Philippians would respond with unity, which comes from humility, which comes from submission to Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Therefore... There's a connection word that leads into our text this week. Therefore, in light of what he's just said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that word there, obeyed, what is underneath it is a word that means to put yourself under what you have heard. Literally means to submit to a voice. And what the Philippians had obeyed was the gospel. We forget sometimes the gospel is not just an invitation. It's not just an offer. But the gospel is a command, Acts Uh, 17, verse 30, uh, Paul says to the folks in Athens, God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. The New Testament frequently speaks of people obeying the gospel or, on the other hand, not obeying the gospel. The call to believe, repent, 
confess, have faith, be baptized. That is a command of God. And you can go back to Acts chapter 16 and see how the Philippians had heard the voice of God through the preaching of Paul. And they had responded with the appropriate faith, bowing their knee and confessing with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as he put it in verse 11 here. So, therefore... Because God's glory is at stake, because Christ has lordship over all people at all times in all places, because Christ has commanded us to humble ourselves before him and be unified amongst ourselves, have humility, and because of his obedience, therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, and whatever he says next is going to mean keep obeying what you were doing before. So now keep doing more as you have been obeying. So now keep obeying, keep submitting to the word of God. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And let's take that apart a piece at a time, because if we get that wrong, then we will uh, be in danger of seriously torching the joy and uh, fruitfulness of our Christian lives. When Paul says work out. He's not saying work for your salvation and earn it. He's not saying work up your salvation from inside. And he's not saying work toward your salvation as though you don't know whether or not you're going to have it until you get there. If we get this wrong, then the fear and trembling that he's talking about will instead be panic and dread as we contemplate God's judgment, his wrath, his violent anger towards sin and our complete inability to meet his standards. If we allow this verse to drive us towards a performance-oriented view of the Christian life, then we will completely miss the point, and we will forfeit the joy that Paul so obviously wants to be ours. Now, if this is something that they have already been doing, then why is he reminding them to keep on doing it? Why is the reminder necessary? Is this the apostolic equivalent of your annoying great aunt who always tells you, in spite of your perfect driving record, to drive safely and buckle up, as though what you really wanted to do was paint your toenails while carving a pumpkin while driving home? No, it stands to reason that if Paul is telling them this, that it is significant and it's meaningful and it's important for their health and safety in the Christian life. It matters especially, as we'll see later in chapter 4, in the areas where they're starting to slip in this a little bit. Okay, the word underneath, work out, means to carry out, to push towards completion, to drive towards an end point, to perform or achieve some specific aim. It was used to describe a mine. There's uh, gold or coal or diamonds or whatever down in the ground, and it's there, but it has to be worked out. The mine has to be worked out in order to uh, enjoy those mineral riches. It's October. It's in the Midwest. That means it's harvest season and whatever corn and soybeans have survived the summer are out there in the field, ready to be harvested. But they are out there and there is work that needs to be done to get that grain into the barns and get it dried before winter and the snow comes. And it's hard work. So you'll see them out there in the fields with their combines night and day, getting the grain into the barns or from a dairy perspective, you've got these cows, you've worked hard to breed them and raise them and feed them and care for them, and they're healthy and they're happy and they're comfortable and they're producing tons of milk. 
But you still have to milk them. You still have to get up at five in the morning and go milk the cows. They are out there. The milk is there in the cows and it's waiting for you. And the cows are waiting for you. They're lining up outside the parlor waiting for you to get out of bed and go milk them. Because you have to do the work and work out that part of the job in order to make a living at uh, making a living at it. And believe me, there's nothing quite so tempting as staying in bed when you know that there are 200 hungry impatient, smelly Holsteins waiting for you in the dark, damp, cold, freezing parlor. But if you want to know the joy of dairy, then you have to work out those assets. Now, Paul is writing to Christian believers. They have already obeyed the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 6, God has begun a good work in them. And they must individually continue to work that out, carry to completion, bring into reality their own salvation. The Bible speaks of salvation in three different ways, and this is clearly the uh, sanctification aspect of salvation. It comes after initial conversion, comes after justification, when they initially responded to the gospel. It is the now what portion of the Christian life. And Paul is saying, now, just as you have been obeying, keep on obeying by working out your salvation. This is where our marriage illustration comes in. Austin and Erica will be married, but to build a marriage will require them to work out their vows. They're going to promise a bunch of stuff to each other two weekends from now. And if they fulfill half of that, half as well as they presently understand it, then they'll be doing quite well because they have no idea what it's going to take to love and cherish and honor each other for richer or for poorer through sickness and in health, whether the cards win the pennants or whether they quit in July, they have no idea how hard that's going to be all the way from now until death parts them. They are married, or rather they, they will be married, let's not get ahead of ourselves, they will be married, but building a marriage will take extraordinary effort. And you know what? A little fear and trembling will go a long way towards making that possible. Husbands, I'll uh, aim this directly at us. We should be afraid of the consequences of what might happen if we fail to keep our vows. Not high-profile catastrophic failure like adultery or abuse, but the seemingly minor, small, trivial things like um, the uh, lethargic pursuit of romance or simple passive neglect or harsh words or stolen moments on the internet or uh, any hobby or career or passion or sport that we put above our passion for first our savior and second for our beloved all that small what seems like minor and trivial pebbles to add up into a wasteland of lost intimacy and stagnancy and broken dreams all right now shift back to the christian life god has called us God has saved us. God has begun a work in us, and we are to work it out. We are to bring to fruition what he has already uh, planted in our lives. And we have the fear of the Lord to motivate us, not that panic and dread of impending judgment. Christ has paid for our sins and permanently atoned for them. So what does the fear of the Lord mean for a Christian? Not that fear of wrath. Instead of dread, we have the fear of lingering sin, the fear of stagnant growth, the fear that in three years' time, I will be just as um, undisciplined and impatient and self-absorbed as I am now, that I'll be no more interested in God's word, no closer to him, no more uh, desiring to have communion with him through prayer than I do right now. The thought that this church might not grow 
in unity and humility and we might not be courageous in the face of opposition, that should make us tremble. Because if we are not unified and if we are not humble, if we are not bold, if we are not growing in Christ's likeness, then we will incur not the wrath of an almighty judge, but instead the displeasure and discipline of our beloved Heavenly Father. We fear that we will invite upon ourselves unpleasant corrective discipline that could have been avoided. And most fearful of all, we should fear that uh, by, by failing to live as we should, that we will fail to glorify God as he should and bring, into, uh, bring his name into disrepute and derision here in Hamilton County. We don't have to be afraid that he's mad at us. We don't have to be afraid that we don't measure up to uh, his expectations. We don't have to be afraid that he's going to drop us and give up on us. Instead, we fear a strain in our relationship with him and embarrassing the family name. Now, now that God has begun this work in us, how are we supposed to carry it forward and work it out? How are we supposed to accomplish this divine mission? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What resources do we have to work out our salvation? What energy can we call on? What power is it that makes this impossible task possible? Only the very power of God himself in our lives. This is not just God working on us. It is not just God working through us, but it is God working in us. The Holy Spirit working on us from the inside. And it's God himself doing the work. It's not just uh, his word, not just his servants, not just his example, but God himself is working in us. And he's not just working on the grown-ups and the adults or the super spiritual ministry team leaders and elders and staff. He's working in every Christian. Not only does he give us the power, not only does he provide the energy, but he even provides, as we see here, the desire. God is at work in you to will what he wills, to want what he wants, to love what he loves, and to desire to be cleansed from what offends him. Even that desire comes from God, Paul is saying here. It's the union of two great verses on the opposite sides of the page here in Philippians. From chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will do it. He began it. He will bring it to completion. God is doing it. On the facing page, chapter 3, verse 12, 13, 14, 15, forgetting what lies behind, excuse me, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize. That's Paul talking. Paul is doing it. And the Philippians do it. We are doing it. When uh, this summer we talked about how it was God at work and the Christian at work in the spiritual life when we talked about mortifying our sin, the uh, suffocating it and smothering it and starving it of life. We saw that in Romans 8. If we, excuse me, if by the Spirit you put to death, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. It's by the Spirit, but it's us doing the work. Unless you think that I'm reading way too much into two short verses in Philippians and Colossians 1. It uh, should be about one page to your right. We see in verse 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. In Philippians, he says he runs, he says he labors. In Colossians, he says he toils. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he 
powerfully works within me. Paul toils, working harder than any of the other apostles, he tells the Corinthians. Uh, but it's not just Paul spinning the hamster wheel. It's Paul working through the power of the Spirit that is at work in him. Paul struggling with God's energy and God that is working. We strive, we work, we run, we labor, we toil because he works, he wills, and he is accomplishing it for his good pleasure. That's how Paul finishes out verse 13, to will and to work for his good pleasure. We saw in verse 10 and 11 that uh, Christ is exalted and worshipped by everyone ever for the glory of God the Father. And here in verses 12 and 13, it's the Holy Spirit at work in the church, at work in Christians, to will and to work for his good pleasure, bringing pleasure to God by working in us our will and our work, our desires and our deeds, and thereby bringing more glory to God. Okay, let's press onward. Uh, What specifically does he will? What specifically is the work that he wants us to achieve and to work out and to be doing for his glory? Continue with verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Okay, I use the English Standard Version. And if you don't already have a Bible, I think you should use ESV too. If you already have a Bible and you love it and you read it and you're growing in it, then please continue. But if you don't, have a Bible, or if you have one, you're not using it, then get yourself an ESV because it is great. So in my personal Bible, it says uh, grumbling or questioning, and that was the original 2001 text. In 2002, they immediately revised it to say grumbling or, uh, it's not questioning, but instead it's disputing, which uh, is a much, much better rendering of that word. And by all means, ask God your questions. Paul's saying not, don't ask your questions, you know, Ask your questions. You got church questions. Come to your elders. You got admin questions. Go to the admin team. We always tell Brianna, ask us your questions. Ask all the questions you want. When it's time to listen, you listen. When it's time to obey, you obey. But please, ask us your questions. So this week it comes out, what does getting crunk mean? Well, you know, I, I don't know. You'll have to ask your mother. I really don't know. But in the morning, uh, go to bed. And so, you know, ask your questions, but don't be disputing. Because that is a completely different attitude that's involved there. God says, as you do everything, as you work out your salvation, as you're pursuing unity and humility and courage, don't grumble. Don't dispute. Those attitudes are completely antithetical to the attitude that should characterize those whose manner of life is worthy of the gospel. It's not enough to say that it's the opposite because it's a complete Uh, subversion and falsifying of what the attitude of the Christian should be. And here's why. Here's why Paul goes here. When I first read this, don't grumble, don't dispute, don't complain, it reminded me very much of being a middle schooler, being 12 again, listening to my mother say, shape up. And I don't know why that expression means what it means, but I did know exactly what it meant when she used it. It means don't just listen, don't just obey, but do it with a good attitude. Shape up. Quit your complaining, quit your grumbling, quit your eye-rolling and you're muttering and you're back-talking and you're disputing, uh, quit scowling, shape up, right? I know hardly any of you can believe that I act like that, or I used to. It just doesn't sound like me at all anymore. It's embarrassing, and it's juvenile, and it's immature. And uh, what's Paul getting at? If we live out the Christian life with that attitude of eye-rolling, disputing, questioning, grumbling, complaining, back-talking towards God... Okay, that's not just you being in a mood. That is, uh, whether you mean it or not, you're calling God's character into question. Is God sovereign over your life or is he not? Is Christ Lord or 
isn't he? Is God good or is he not? Is his providence sufficient or isn't it? Is he faithful or is he flaky? Is his care over your life adequate or is it not? Is he using you in a way that brings him glory but doesn't have any regard for your welfare? Is he holding out on you? Is the work that he's doing in your life welcome or unwelcome? When my attitude is characterized by grumbling and complaining and questioning and disputing, I am testifying and preaching to myself, to my family, to the church, and especially to the watching world that God is not sovereign and he's not good and he can't be depended on and uh, he's inadequate in his care and insufficient in his provision and I could really do a better job of it myself if he would just leave me alone. When I grumble about my job or uh, my yard or my finances, my car, my in-laws, my church responsibilities, the weather, in-laws, whatever, I am making a fairly loud statement about what I think of God's governance and provision in his life and the way that he has worked the circumstances to bring me to this point and beyond. That attitude is contagious among believers, and it is all too plausible and convenient for those in the world watching Christians looking for a reason to discount the gospel. When they see us grumbling and complaining, they say, hey, you Christians, you got a bunch of things you, you can't do, and it just makes you as grumpy as the rest of us, so why bother? It's embarrassing to the name of God, and it mars the image of glory that I know he's trying to work in my life and yours. Now, notice the contrast that Paul is building here. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Briefly, he gives four different expressions of purity. Blameless, innocent, children of God, without blemish. All of those things are true of us in the sight of God when he views us in Christ. And they will be true of us in actual fact when we are glorified. But in the intervening time period, they do not always adequately characterize the people of God, although they should be increasingly true as we grow in Christ and work out our salvation and bring to fulfillment what is already true about us in Christ, then we will become, we'll be becoming more and more blameless and innocent without blemish and more and more what the children of God can be and should be. And when we were uh, breaking up the book of Philippians into sections, we did not know exactly what to call this chunk. And the joy of becoming was one of the candidates, but it wasn't very gripping. And uh, the joy of continuing was worse. And uh, the, the, the joy of working out was confusing. And nobody would have taken this seriously if we said the joy of fear and trembling. Uh, Jeff and Eric courteously left it up to me to pick the title. And what I settled on was the joy of shining, because that is the point of where Paul is driving next in the next verse. Blameless, innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, or lights in the universe, as the NIV. Literally, we are illuminating like beacons in the cosmos, this vast black universe, this present darkness, this crooked and twisted generation that he refers to. That is a direct reference from back in the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 32, when Moses is giving his farewell address to the people of Israel. They've been in the wilderness, and when they were in the wilderness, they were very much characterized by grumbling, complaining, and disputing. That was the people of Israel. And now they're going into the promised land. And Moses calls them 
a crooked and twisted generation. Because he knows that even though they have the law, they have the word of God delivered with smoke and fire on Mount Sinai, they have the Ten Commandments fresh, he knows that they will not keep them because they cannot keep them. They are going to find a new moral code that better suits their appetites, and their moral compass is going to become warped and twisted. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The people that we live among right here in Hamilton County, their moral code is warped and twisted. And when we grow in Christ and we glorify him through unity and courage by not complaining and not grumbling and not disputing, we beautifully and gloriously shine into that darkness so that it is illuminated and those people who are lost can see that there is something besides the darkness and they can uh, have hope and they can come to Christ and see and turn and repent and come to Jesus. Let your light shine before others. It's on the front cover of the bulletin. Excellent work, Nancy. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Back in Philippians 2, a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then comes a word that has a double meaning. ESV says holding fast to the word of life, persevering, enduring, continuing, being faithful. And the NIV says holding forth the word of life, sharing, proclaiming, evangelizing, and demonstrating. I really don't think it has to be one or the other. If you're writing a Bible translation, you've got to choose one or the other. But for understanding it, holding fast and holding forth are both uh, what he's getting at. We shine the light of Christ by holding fast to him, by faithfully and diligently uh, working out our salvation all the way to the end. And we shine the light of life by uh, holding it forth to others, the word of life that can save them. If you are not yet in Christ, then, and if you have not yet embraced him by faith and trusted him for your salvation, then this morning is your opportunity to come into that light. You no longer need to fear God uh, with that dread and panic of impending wrath and judgment. You can exchange that fear today for the fear of disappointing and displeasing a beloved Heavenly Father, a, dis a fear of staying where you are, lost in your sins, and uh, instead you can press forward to know him more. Those of you who do know Christ this morning, keep on holding fast to the word of life and keep on holding forth the word of life. Not just with the explicit words that you say about Jesus, but with all those other words that you say during the day that betrays whether you have an attitude that is grumbling and complaining and disputing or whether you have an attitude of loving, humble submission to the Savior and unity with his people. Okay, what is the result of all this? What does Paul hope to accomplish by us working out our salvation, free of any complaining and grumbling, in the face of a dark world, all the way to the end? Well, of course, joy. It's the point of the whole book. Continue here. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. Paul will rejoice over the faithfulness of his beloved Philippians. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, referring to the very real possibility of an imminent execution. He's writing this from prison. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, even if my life is spent, drained, exhausted in the fulfillment of my call, even so, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
God does not give us this task to do alone. He gives us his spirit to will and to work inside of us, and he gives us each other so that we can support one another and encourage one another, give each other strength on the journey to help each other grow in humility and unity and courage, and especially to help each other recognize when we're being grumbly because we can't always see it and recognize it when we're in the middle of it. We can help each other there by reminding each other of what God is doing in our lives and who he is and what his nature is as we actively pursue him together. We can rejoice with each other's successes and rejoice as we grow more like our Savior. God is giving Austin and Erica to each other, not just so that they can have happy marriage, but so that their sanctification can be driven forward. Because nothing exposes sin in somebody's life like having to live with another sinner. Nothing except maybe parenting another sinner. That's, that's pretty serious, too, as far as sanctification goes. Because if you're going to get through that without killing each other, then you're going to have to grow in holiness and grow in Christ-likeness. And at Prairie View, we would much rather you grow in godliness than grow in criminality. Okay, so uh, God has given Austin and Erica to each other for their growth, and he's given us to each other for our growth and godliness in the Christian life, especially in our small groups. If you do not have a small group, get in a small group, because that is where this happens. We can be here, 40, 50 of us in the same room, and nobody have any clue who's grumbling, who's complaining, who needs a word of encouragement. But when you get in a small group, it's much, much harder to hide And that's how we can drive forward and work out sanctification in each other's lives. Let's pray towards that end. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we can share in your word this morning. I thank you that uh, you have spoken to us and uh, not just spoken to the Philippians so that they could benefit from this, but that you were speaking through Paul, through this letter, through my preaching, into the heart of your people. I pray that uh, folks would have the courage to respond in the ways that they know that they need to, to confess the sin that they know is in their hearts, to say uh, hard and courageous things to each other when they needs to be pointed out that somebody is grumbling or complaining or speaking in a way that seems as though God is not real, that you are not real, that you are not at work among us, that you are not good, that you are not working for your glory and our good in this world. I thank you that you've placed us into this church and that you have placed us into small groups so that we can be helping each other as we pursue you together. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.